This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode is not recorded in the shed because of COVID-19, the coronavirus, but it's all about the never-ending story. I'm delighted to say that I'm not sitting alone. Well, I am sitting alone in a room in my house, but I'm not alone on the podcast because with me today are... Maddie. And... Steve. And... Tisha. And not here because he's doing a Star Trek (laughs) jigsaw (laughs) is Ty. Hello, this is Ty. I'm afraid I can't be with the rest of the Cosmic Shed tonight because I'm at home about a quarter of the way through an epically hard 1,000-piece Haynes USS Enterprise Star Trek puzzle. It's really hard. But Andrew has asked me to uh, just say a few words on the never-ending story. Uh, I honestly don't know why the Cosmic Shed is doing this. Uh, There's no science in it. It's all magic. But, hey, what the hell? So, first of all, never-ending story. Banging theme tune. I think that's the best thing really in it. And it traumatised an entire generation. If you haven't seen it, you know, there, are, there is some horrible, horrible things in this film. There is a, an evil wolf that stalks young children. Uh, our hero sees his horse drown in mud. Um, also, fraudulent advertising. Turns out the story does end. So if you're looking just for a long three-hour epic, you're not going to get it from the never-ending story, which kind of runs in at a tight... Uh, I think it's like an hour and a half. Either way, rubbish. Um, so it's directed by Wolfgang Peterson, based off the novel by uh, Michael N. that I actually read when I was younger. Uh, again, it's it's fine. But Wolfgang Peterson, you know, he's a German director that did the likes of Das Boot. And then he's also done bigger Hollywood films such as, apart from The NeverEnding Story, Enemy Mine. That's a good little sci-fi thing. Uh, that is essentially a sci-fi version of War in the Pacific. But instead of Lee Marvin and Shiro Mifune, you've got uh, Dennis Quaid and... Is it Louis Gossett Jr.? Anyway, he also did In the Line of Fire. Uh, Outbreak, of course, which seems rather relevant now. Why aren't they doing Outbreak? Outbreak over the never-ending story. Air Force One, of course. The perfect storm. Again, in the middle of a pandemic, you should have something like The Perfect Storm... Uh, the remake of the Poseidon Adventure, Poseidon with Kurt Russell, that was fine. And Troy, which I like. Uh, so yeah, even of all the Wolfgang Peterson films, I have no idea why we're doing The NeverEnding Story. But it is, of course, about a young boy, Bastian, lost his mum, sucked into a mystical world of Fantasia and has to stop the nothing, a dark force that is going to spread evil and despair all over the land. Uh, Along the way, he meets a wish dragon and a bunch of interesting characters. Honestly, the never-ending story I haven't seen since I was 16. And I think that when I last saw it, I loved it as a kid, I could see the cracks beginning to show. And that is why I'm afraid to re-watch it with the rest of the crew. Um, I think whatever nostalgia I have for it will be shattered if I re-watch it. I remember thinking the bit with those two statues that fire lasers out of their eyes was incredibly cool. I loved the wish dragon. Parts of it were really scary, but now I think I'd just probably be focusing on the uh, very dated haircuts. And plus, this, this puzzle's really, really kind of challenging me. 
and you know I need something to take my mind off what's going on in the world and this puzzle is doing it so enjoy the film again no idea why the cosmic shed is doing it I'm sure Andrew has his reasons however misguided they might be let's do outbreak man Dustin Hoffman Cuba Gooding Jr Rene Russo a monkey a killer virus what could be more timely Thanks, Ty. And uh, to answer your question, Ty, the reason why we're doing The NeverEnding Story is because the baddie in it is supposed to be, but we'll come to this, nothing. (laughs) 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 And and, uh, I haven't seen the film for so long, and there's a story that came up in the news recently about... Uh, well, it was presented as the, the biggest explosion in space since the Big Bang, and it was caused by black holes. And I thought, well, the nothing from the never-ending story, the closest thing in nature that we have to it is black holes. There's an interesting black hole story. There's an excuse to speak to the person or one of the people who discovered this amazing thing. So I did that. I, I, I'm really sorry, Andrew, but this is the most tenuous excuse for a film link that we've ever done on the Cosmic Shed. I know, but <laughs> Melanie Johnson Hollett. I'm the director of the Murchison Widefield Array and a research professor in the Curtin University node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. The MWA, Murchison Widefield Array, is a low-frequency radio telescope located in the Midwest of Western Australia in one of the most underpopulated regions of Australia. It's a collection of just over 4,000 dipole antennas that look like shiny metal spiders that we've got distributed over about 5.5 kilometres and we cross-correlate the signals between them all to be able to try and detect uh, low-frequency emission from various uh, sources in the universe. What sort of things in the universe would be putting out low frequencies that you could detect with it lots of things put out low frequencies in the universe so anytime you've got an electron spiraling in a magnetic field uh, you get synchrotron radiation and that is uh, broadband radiation but it's hard to detect at high frequencies and easy to detect at low frequencies and so we see our galaxy the milky way is awash with electrons and magnetic fields and so we can see that in the corresponding radio emission So we see supernova remnants, we see um, galaxy clusters, so we see the diffuse radio emission in galaxy clusters, we see the jets from radio galaxies. Uh, All of these things produce low-frequency radio emission. So we detect a a huge number of of different things with it. Um, One of the things that we're really trying to do is we're trying to detect the global signal of the epoch of reionization, which is the period in the history of the universe when the first stars and galaxies formed, that we will actually see in the low-frequency part of the the radio spectrum, not through synchrotron emission, but through uh, cosmologically redshifted um, neutral hydrogen emission. So there's a spin-flip transition for neutral hydrogen, which occurs at a much higher frequency in the rest frame, but because the universe is very, very old and has expanded quite a lot, it's been redshifted down to low frequencies, so we're trying to detect that. Things like that. When you say you're trying to detect that, does that mean you haven't yet? No one's detected it yet, um, but the MWA has the three lowest limits, actually, on the detection of the epoch of reionization. So this is actually a thing that uh, a number of teams around the world are using a number of different low-frequency radio telescopes to try and detect. So 
when someone does detect it, it's a Nobel Prize level discovery. So we're getting closer and closer, but uh, we're still, I think, a long way off. So it's one of those really, really difficult signals to detect because it's very, very faint. Um, we're trying to detect the global signal, which is across the whole sky, but everything that's happened since those first stars and galaxies have formed is a foreground in the front. So it's trying to like, kind of like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So you're trying to find this very faint global signal, but you've got to remove everything that's happened in this sort of history of the universe uh, in front of it. So yeah, no, we haven't detected it yet, but we're getting closer. Cool. That's exciting. It is exciting. But you have discovered something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we've discovered lots of things, but we've discovered something particularly interesting recently, which is that we've discovered the most energetic uh, outburst from a supermassive black hole ever seen, so in the history of the universe. So that was pretty cool. Okay, I'll allow it. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. And thank you to Melanie johnson Hollett. We'll hear much more from her later in the podcast. I know why you are all here. The nothing is destroying our world. And there just might be one chance. His name is Atreyu. You would be willing to go on a quest? So, never-ending story. We've all just watched the film. It's on Netflix. If you are listening to this, you haven't seen it, um, use your Netflix account, hack into a friend's Netflix account, watch it, and then come back, because there will be spoilers. But, um, Tushna, let's start with you. Mm -hmm. Have you seen it before? I haven't, actually. This is one of those things that I've... um, It's kind of been on my list for ages because people talk about it. Um, But then I was told by someone that the film was awful and I should never watch it and I should only ever read the book if I'm going to do it. (laughs) So I figured, since I hadn't read the book either, uh, we might as well watch the film first so that, you know, it can't ruin it for me. (laughs) And so you have now watched the film. What did you think? I mean, it was it was it was fun. It was kind of it was so eighties. I loved it. <laughs> I'm not sure about the the what, the wish dragon. Luck dragon. Falcor. Falcor, thank you. I mean, you know, I just wasn't sure about what it was <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a luck dragon. It's what it is. It's a luck dragon. <laughs> It was kind of like, it was literally like if someone tried to take a dog and then make it into a wise old creature, but it's just a dog (laughs) and it can fly and it gets distracted every now and again and then goes, where's my master? (laughs) It's cute. I I was just going to, I I have to, I was trying to sneak away. (laughs) I, I mean, no, no. I like children. For breakfast? <laughs> Never. I'm a luck dragon. My name is Falcor. And my name is... Atreyu. And you're on a quest. I think Falcor's kind of lovely. Yeah. Michael Ender, who wrote the book, didn't like Falcor at all in the film because he said it was like a dog. So mm. you're right. Well, there you go. It was also made out of aeroplane steel, Steve. You what? It was made out of aeroplane steel. Seriously? 
Yeah, it was incredibly heavy, apparently. <laughs> you never get that off the ground. <laughs> I don't know if that's why they made it, because they thought it would then fly. But I know someone that could calculate the lift-to-drag coefficient of that, if you want. Just give me three oh. weeks on a supercomputer. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay, first thoughts from Maddie. Have you seen it before? I I can't quite remember. I think I probably watched it at some point as a child. Um, but I can see why I would have been scared by it. Like, those faces on all of those creatures are terrifying. Like, the way that they move. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm pretty sure that, you know, I must have watched it ages ago. And then, because I, I don't know how I would know the song otherwise. Like, I must have seen it before. Because I just know the, the theme tune. That's literally all I remember about it. But... The more and more I watch, like, children's movies, like now, particularly ones from, like, the 80s, they are so trippy and so dark <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what is going on? Like, why are we yeah. showing our children these things? <laughs> like, what the hell? Um, but I did, like, um, I liked the Sphinx statues when they blew people up. I was like, oh, the way that they described why they would do that, I was like, oh, that's a nice way of telling children not to have too big of an ego. Like if they have yeah. they have a really big ego, they'll get blown up. Um, so I feel like there are some like nice kind of wholesome like things coming through about what kind of person you should be. Like there's that whole speech about the having hopes and dreams, and like when people forget those, they obviously sink into despair, and like things start to fall apart. And that was really really nice. Um, I think they should have called it something different to Fantasia because there were no dancing mops, which I was really disappointed about. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I can't say I'd watch it again. <laughs> um, one time is more than enough. Um, but yeah, it was yeah. good fun. The, the nice ideas coming through is because it's based on an incredibly beautiful book, right? That's, that's just it's lovely ideas in a lovely book. As I think people who loved, loved the book... Um, don't love the film quite as much. <laughs> yeah, Michael Ender, who wrote the book, but he absolutely hated the film. So uh, that, I think that moment with the Sphinxes, which are, um, I don't know if Steve noticed, but sort of anatomically quite <laughs> dr- dramatic. And Michael Ender said that the Sphinxes are quite one of the biggest embarrassments of the film because they look so terrible. Um in the book, that is such a lovely idea, and to have it represented by these ridiculous things <laughs> uh, blasting away at each other with um, exposed breasts is just quite, quite upsetting. I imagine if you've poured your heart and soul into a novel. Oh, oh no! Don't start to doubt yourself. Never Ending Story is a really defining film of my childhood. I am definitely a child of the 80s. Andrew, I know that you remember the 80s well. I uh, <laughs> I wouldn't deign to ask Maddie and Tushner uh, how much of the 80s they remember. Um, 
but this this is definitely one that that was a a regular feature in the Bullock household. Um, one thing that that really sticks in my mind is that my brother absolutely hated it. He's a couple of years younger than me, and whenever that wolf came on screen, he used to go and hide behind the sofa and uh, scream at me to turn it off. Um, so so it, it has some some humorous childhood memories for me, but um, I think it holds up. I remember it being sort of a, a classic fantasy film. Uh, as as many of those eighties ones are, and uh, no, I, I probably haven't watched it for twenty five years or more. Um, so I didn't I didn't remember a great deal. I the the, the faces of all the different characters in that um, forum at the start. I think I, I agree with Maddie on that one that uh, it's all a little bit weirder than I remembered. Um, but Falcor is definitely a classic. Yeah, I mean Falcor. Falcor to me sounds like a kind of eighties pop band more than anything else. <laughs> but it, it's uh, uh, there, there was there was a band that named themselves uh, after that. I oh think. really? I'm mean, no, not just thinking of Falco. Influences. Oh no, sorry, it was a Treyu. Ah, an American metal band called a Treyu that I remember. That's amazing. I was, you know, the horse Artex. Oh, is it Artex? Yeah. Okay. Is, that, that is, that named, right. is that named after the ceiling because it's a white horse? <laughs> That's definitely a, a comment from someone that remembers the 80s as well, Andrew. <laughs> um, as, as Ty mentioned, the director's previous film was Das Boot. Seriously? Uh, which is quite different. Yeah, and that was, at the time, the, t- uh, the most expensive film in German history and uh, the never-ending story greatly surpassed that ending up costing 27 million dollars back in the day which is quite a lot back then um he apparently pushed for 40 takes on some scenes and it was supposed to take three months to film but that turned into a year to be honest some some of the takes i think they could have done more on them (laughs) i mean you know. Anyway, say my name, Bastian. <laughs> <laughs> what is the name? Did anyone catch the name? Uh, it's like Moon Princess or something. Isn't it? Moon Child. Oh, I thought it was Moonshine. Yeah, the subtitle said Moon Child, and I kind of thought, wow, your mum had a really hippie name. Yeah. Um, because it didn't need any say, like in the beginning, yes. that oh, I had the perfect name. It's my mother's name. So I was kind of. Like, I was expecting something like, I don't know, Eleanor or something. <laughs> <laughs> then he came out with Moonchild. <laughs> I was like, oh, hippie parents. Strange. Dad didn't look like a hippie, but okay, maybe, maybe. The German version is seven minutes longer and doesn't have Giorgio Moroder doing the soundtrack. Peterson was a good friend with a man called Steven Spielberg, and he sent him the film. He suggested an edit, which is basically just pacing, which took seven minutes out of the um, out of the film, which was quite a short film to begin with, although quite slow, and although also jumps around a lot to begin with. I mean, I to be honest, when I was watching it uh, tonight, I'm sure the relationship with the horse had built up quite a lot before it died. When I remembered it as a child, but. You've literally just met the horse and then it dies. But it's a horse and you're a child, so obviously... Yes, true. And the soundtrack's amazing, right? It's not just that song. Throughout, it's got this beautiful 
80s loveliness to it. In the original German version, that song doesn't exist. The themes of, of the film, the other music in it, by the, the other composer, Klaus Doldinger. So anyway, Steven Spielberg added the song and the rumbling sounds of the rock biter. Okay. There is science in it. Uh, there's a scientist in it. My name is Ingebuk. Uh, his scientific speciality is the Southern Oracle. I've been studying the mysteries of the Southern Oracle for years. Someday I'll publish my book. <laughs> and then you got to see his telescope, and I'm doing air quotes, not that you can see them, right? Yeah, I've never seen a telescope with, like, multicoloured <laughs> fluids inside of it. That was mad. And then with all of those giant, like, crystals, like, sticking out, like, metres long from the end. I was going to say, like, why were there just crystals? Like, why wasn't there (laughs) any kind of lens? (laughs) We normally do science fiction, and and The NeverEnding Story is definitely a fantasy film. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Um, I I think, uh, when I watch these old fantasy films, do you know what I always think? Isn't Star Wars good? (laughs) You don't move in scientific circles. Let's get back to the telescope, right? Because (laughs) he says a line. Have you ever been to the Southern Oracle? What do you think? I work scientifically. I just thought, well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Of course scientists see what they study. And then I remembered, of course, that with radio astronomy, you don't see it. Melanie Johnson-Hollett and team discovered what was described by the BBC as the biggest explosion in space since the Big Bang. Yeah, so it's sort of a misnomer to say that the Big Bang was an explosion in the same sense, um, but this this is in the sense that people can think about it like an ongoing volcanic eruption, but with a ridiculous amount of energy. So we were looking at the Ophiuchus Galaxy Cluster, uh, which is... Not a very remarkable galaxy cluster, but it's it's relatively nearby. And so what that is is a collection of galaxies orbiting around uh, the same gravitational uh, point. So they've got the same gravitational well, we say, embedded in a bunch of plasma, which is emitting uh, X-ray photons, which we can detect with an X-ray telescope. And then sitting in the very centre of all of that is a galaxy which hosts a supermassive black hole. And that supermassive black hole as it turns out, is producing prodigious amounts of energy which is being sent out into the universe in the form of highly relativistic particles and magnetic fields. And they were so large that they punched a hole uh, 15 times the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, in the plasma uh, of the galaxy cluster. So a huge big cavity uh, was detected in the X-ray emission. And then with radio telescopes, we could see that it was filled with with radio emission, which is indicative of these outflows. So that's what we detected. 
which is cool. Yeah, it's incredibly cool, right? But this, well, it, uh, just to get my try and picture it in my head, when you say it's, it's blown a hole in it, there's a cavity. Is that is that nothing? Is that literally just space? What is that? Um, well, I mean, it's 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 literally like a bubble. So what's happened is that this supermassive black hole has material falling into it on an accretion disk, and once it gets past a threshold, some of that material. Uh, gets accelerated out. So you get accelerated particles of magnetic fields and they erupt perpendicular to the accretion disk and they push apart uh, the ambient medium, which is this hot X-ray emitting plasma that we find in the centre of galaxy clusters. And so what happens then is that the cavity is filled with the stuff that came out of the... Well, not came out of the black hole exactly, but came from near the black hole. So it's not nothing. It's then filled with... Um, the electrons and magnetic fields that have that have been emitted by the supermassive black hole or close to the supermassive black hole. So you see a bubble in the X-ray, a hole in the X-ray, and then you see it filled with radio emission from these electrons spiralling in that magnetic field, which produces radio emission. And that is fifteen. That bubble is fifteen times the size of the Milky Way. Yes, it's one point five million light years in diameter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, so um, <laughs> it's big. I mean, that what? Where, how? How has this not been seen before? Ah, well, that's an interesting question. So the reason that we haven't seen it before is because we have better and better telescopes to do this type of science. So, you know, we've been doing X-ray observations of galaxy clusters since the '80s, and we've been getting better and better telescopes to do that. So it's really difficult to make a. Uh, a sharp image with an X-ray telescope because X-ray photons are very energetic and so it's hard to focus them. And so the Chandra X-ray telescope is one of uh, the best telescopes that we've ever had to image galaxy clusters because it can actually make reasonably good images. And so a previous team had actually looked at this cluster and seen this cavity and not seen anything in it. They they looked at um, the existing radio information and they said, oh, there's nothing there. And so they discounted the possibility of this being produced by an AGN, so active galactic nuclei, so black hole outburst, because they said it's going to be too energetic. This would be five times bigger than the, the, the nearest record holder that we have, so that's too big, so it won't be that. And so, so one of the reasons we haven't seen the cavities before is because we didn't have good X-ray telescopes. But the reason that we couldn't then really understand what was happening was because we've only had really good, sensitive, low-frequency radio telescopes for the last decade. So historically, we've done radio astronomy at much higher frequencies. And this radio emission is, a, is what we call an old fossilised plasma. And you can't really see it at high radio frequencies. You can only see it at low frequencies. So in looking with telescopes like the Murchison Widefield Array, you can actually start to see things that we've have been invisible, literally been invisible to us before. Thanks, Melanie. And we'll be back again to Melanie johnson Hollett later <laughs> to hear about that amazing discovery uh but when they were there was a persistent rumor on the internet that the horse artex artax is it artax <laughs> is it okay but there was a persistent rumor that it died in the filming of the film which is apparently not true the horse did oh, not thank goodness die <laughs> and was actually presented to noah hathaway who played atreyu was the horse was donated to him but he, um, A, couldn't ride a horse, and B, lived in America, and the horse was in Germany. So <laughs> he, he donated the horse 
to the riding double and uh, it lived very happily for 20 years. I don't know if it lived happily, to be perfectly honest. I've no way of testing that. But It I'm lived. Not... <laughs> it lived. <laughs> yeah. And that's what matters. Yes. Please, you're letting the sadness of the swamps get to you. You have to try. You have to care for me. You're my friend. I love you. I was quite disappointed to find that pretty much no one in this movie went on to do much else of significance. Yeah. Were you disappointed by that or just <laughs> aware, yeah, it's, it's aware of it? Nice to, nice to see. Oh, I've actually seen films that they've been in and I didn't recognise them. But um, no, Noah Hathaway became like a... Was it martial artist and dance instructor? <laughs> as did wow. the childlike empress, Tammy Stronach. But also, actually, she released some singles of the same style as not not the German release, but the the the, the English release of the Never Ending Story. And I, I think we need to listen to those. Did anybody see any of the cameos in the Ivory Tower? No, there were too many faces to look at on all the weird people. There were yeah. some hella weird faces. Yeah, that, I mean, it masked all cameos to my eyes. <laughs> Who was there? I'm hoping that in <laughs> Never Ending Story yeah. 2 and 3 that I've just found out about as well, they go into yeah. some more backstory well, because there's some really interesting faces there. But no, sorry, Andrew, tell us about the cameos. I saw E.T. E.T. was in there. <laughs> but apparently R2-D2, Yoda and C-3PO are in there as well. Oh, no way. <laughs> apparently so. I definitely saw E.T. Bottom right towards the oh, uh, wow. first pan back. <laughs> The idea, of course, is that it it is the sum of all human imagination. So, of course, they would be in it. But but what about all the ones that the director didn't have a personal relationship with the uh, director and license holder of the other characters? <laughs> uh, uh, the other it's, the other thing is that the ivory tower actually melted uh, when they were filming it because it was an incredibly hot summer and it melted which is not why it looks the way it looks. I think they fixed it again before um, filming. And actually it was so hot that the blue screens didn't work uh, because of the heat. There was no air conditioning. It was all inside, but everything was melting and, and not working all over the place, which probably didn't help with the budget side of things as well. Before uh, we get on to some science, you know the scene with Gamork... Is it called Gamork? The, the... Yeah, the wolf. The wolf, yeah, Gamork. When Gamork <laughs> comes out and um, attacks Atreyu and it looks like they're having a nice cuddle but then you realise that Atreyu's <laughs> oh stabbed God. it, the, the wolf dog. Um, 
that was one of the scenes where they didn't shoot it seven, 40 times because um, Gamork fell on top of Noah Hathaway when they were filming that and cut his face. So they only did that one that one take of it, and that's the one that's in the film. <laughs> Movie trivia. And you, whoever you are, can have the honour of being my last victim. I've I've just found a a freeze frame of that assembly in the top of the tower, and, and there's definitely Ewoks and ET, and and I think it's Mickey Mouse oh, really? from behind. Um, yeah, apparently it's yeah. Yoda, Mickey Mouse, Chewbacca, C-3PO, the Ewoks, E.T. and Gumby. So not R2-D2? Apparently not. No idea who Gumby is, but where's... I can't see Chewie. Apparently... Oh, no, I found him. Ah, yeah. there you go. Right, we'll have to post that, a link to that, at least, on the Cosmic Shed website, thecosmicshed.com. Super. Let's just stay with the film slightly before we go into the science, because... The baddie in the film, apart from the wolfy dog thing, is nothing. But I, I feel like it's a bit of a misnomer because it's a giant seething mass of black cows. <laughs> it's definitely something. <laughs> it's definitely something, doesn't it? Amadi, how did you feel about nothing? I got what it was supposed to be from context. Yeah. <laughs> um, as Steve said, like what it actually looked like reminded me of James and the Giant Peach when there's like all the like just evil bad like I don't even know what it's yeah billowing dark clouds and yeah it just looked like a really bad storm to be yeah. honest kind of coming through and ravaging the land and tearing it apart as can happen yeah. <laughs> um but I guess like if they just did like how do you depict nothing like you just can't really it's either like the black background when they had like the grain of sand um in their hands which they were passing between each other but that was a bit weird because I was like, if that is all it has become and everything else is nothing, then how are you two still existing? Yeah. <laughs> Getting a bit too technical. Um, yeah, I don't know how else you'd depict it, really, because it's meant to be like a sinister thing because it's a bad thing that people are starting to, you know, feel despair. I think, feel you know, the Marvel bad. thing, what's that called? <laughs> you mean after Thanos's click? Snap. Yeah, the snap, the snap. I can sort of see that working. If the characters, if there were characters in it that you'd grown to love through character development and storyline, then if they started disappearing, I could see that the nothing therefore becomes a terrifying thing. But I think that in this case, they would have had to, like, it wouldn't just be the characters, it would have to be the fabric of that reality disappearing too, because that's what they were trying to go for, wasn't it? Like, the land was disappearing. So, yeah. But yeah, it could have. It could have been a bit cooler like that if it had just sort of slowly unraveled instead of got swallowed up by crazed winds and, and unnecessarily long scenes of watching the hero hang on to a tree. <laughs> I felt like there were too many of those <laughs> he hung on to stumps. No, no, I think that why that felt so bad was because of all the sneezes as well. The sneezing tortoise. <laughs> the sneezing tortoise. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not that it matters, but... Let's do some science. Yay. Um, Tushner, <laughs> before we go back to Melanie Johnson-Hollett, black holes remain incredibly awesome. It's a region of space-time where gravity is so strong that nothing can escape from it, uh, not even light, so everything gets sucked into it. 
and whether it has a bottom, what lies beneath, underneath, beyond, um, nobody knows. But it's extreme gravity that seems to be somehow ripping the fabric of space and time and pulling everything into it up to a certain distance. The cool thing is that there's loads of them in the universe and there's probably the, there's there's one most likely at the centre of every single big galaxy, including our own, and they have um, significant impacts on... Um, the universe, I guess you could say. So, yeah, that sh- short description of black holes. So you might say that they were sort of nothing, but also really actually very much something. Yes, indeed. Indeed, you could say that. So when I was watching the film, obviously I was thinking about black holes, and I was thinking if you lived in, in a on a planet that was approaching a black hole, it would feel like your everything was being swallowed by nothing, right? Um, yeah, so, so so there is this like interesting thing about what you'd see if you were approaching a black hole, um, because because different effects of relativity come into play. So there's this really like weird thing that like if you're in a ship um, that's already been trapped by the black hole, so you know you can't you don't have the escape velocity to escape it anymore. So you're within the event horizon of the black hole. You are definitely going to get sucked in what you would see and feel and experience would be different to someone just outside the pole of the black hole. And to them, they would never actually see you getting sucked in, which is kind of what you see in most films and and all of that, you know, kind of getting sucked in there. They would just sort of see you get stuck in space and then like slowly fade away um, because of relativity and because of the fact that there'd be no actual like coming out of what's actually happening, you know, to see it. So it would be like nothing? Kind of. Because you couldn't see Yeah, kind of. So, you see, the link is there. It's so clear why we're doing this podcast. (laughs) Because it's the same. It's the same thing. And (laughs) I'm sticking with that. And here... See, I I don't know. I would have bought it a bit more if if you'd, like, if you'd said that maybe it had something more to do with dark energy, you know, unraveling the oh, fabric right. of space time and you can't quite see it and you don't know what it is, but you can kind of, you know, observe it with your nod telescope. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we didn't do that. We've done, we've done black holes. And so here is Melanie johnson Hollett again. If this is five times bigger than what we expected before, does this change the way we think about supermassive black holes? Yeah, it does. I mean, this is one of the questions that we have, is that how, how energetic can these things be? And what's the threshold for producing these sort of cavities that we see in, in galaxy clusters? So we know about 50 of them. Uh, and this is certainly the largest one that we've ever seen. And as I said, the one that's required uh, the most amount of, of energy to produce. And so that sort of pushes the limits of of how these things are fed and how big they can be. And so, yeah, it answers it. Well, it, it poses a number of questions that we have yet to answer. Um, and hopefully with, again, the next generation of low frequency radio telescopes, we should be able to see more of these things. So yeah, it's exciting. It opens up a new area to study in detail. It's a bigger supermassive black hole or it's a more energetic or is that the same thing? It's more energetic. Whether or not it's bigger, um, that's un- well, I don't know. Personally, I don't know if it's bigger. I don't think that it's that it's particularly special. So it's more energetic, and we don't understand that. Why are some of these things 
more energetic than others. How does that work? It's it's clearly to do with their environment and with the way that matter is fed into them, but we don't understand that at the level of detail that we need to. For us, it's scientifically interesting, but if you were in that galaxy cluster, it's uh, it's not interesting at all, is it? It's it's devastating. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to be in the path of um, <laughs> this thing. Uh, so somebody asked me about this the other day where they said, well, how would this affect life in the actual galaxy that hosts the supermassive black hole? And, and fortunately, um, when these jets erupt, they're actually very narrow and they get wider as they leave. And so it wouldn't affect that much uh, stuff. But obviously, if you were very near to it, you'd, you'd not be having a good time. And then as they come out, they, they get larger and larger. Yeah, I, right. So... So if you were rel- if you were in the galaxy cluster, but far enough away for it not to um, affect you, what would you see in the sky? You'd see nothing. Well, that that very much depends on in what wavelength you were looking. So if you were looking in optical wavelengths, you wouldn't really see anything. You would see the other galaxies that are members of the galaxy cluster. If you were looking in radio, though, you would see two enormous jets, two enormous lobes sort of filling your, your night sky, um, which would be rather spectacular, I would think. So, yeah, depends what frequency you're looking at. There's, there's a supermassive black hole. It's so massive that it's pulling in even the light, and yet it is ejecting radio emissions out into space. Yeah, well, nothing that passes the event horizon is being ejected out into space. Uh, So it's a complicated process to do with the way that black holes are fed. So you've got this uh, disk of material which is rotating around your black hole and falling into it and feeding it. And in that process, stuff which has not yet crossed the event horizon is being ejected perpendicular uh, to that uh, accretion disk uh, along magnetic field lines and so you've got these electrons spiraling around the magnetic field lines they're accelerated close to the speed of light as they depart that region close to the black hole and then they produce radio emission as they travel out into space so it's not that the nothing crossing into the black hole is is being ejected it's the stuff around it is being affected by the black hole to produce these effects wow i mean that's kind of it makes me think of interstellar yeah yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, yeah, Interstellar was very, very good, yes. Never-ending story. Are you a fan? Absolutely. I, I quite like the song, actually, by Lamal. It's a super cool. And and how can you go past a luck dragon? Luck dragons are cool. Yeah, no, definitely a fan of Never-ending Story. It was one of those um, pivotal movies when I was a kid. Are you a science fiction fan, generally? Yeah, yeah, generally, although it's getting harder and harder for me to be keen on science fiction because it's difficult to, you know, to suspend your disbelief as a physicist. So I'm, I'm one of those annoying people who just sit there and go, oh, God, that's wrong. Um, <laughs> but if I watch things like, uh, you know, Star Trek, I can watch Star Trek without doing that. So it kind of depends on how it's, how it's done, the sci-fi. You watching Picard? I haven't yet. No, I've been too busy. Haven't I? I keep meaning to. I, there's a whole bunch of things that I have uh, lists to watch. I want to watch The Mandalorian, and I haven't been able to watch that either. So, yeah, I've, I've got subscriptions which I'm not using to these uh, these things. Oh yeah, definitely. The Mandalorian is is something where you don't have to worry about the physics, right? That's that's no, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in this? The nothing is a lack of imagination 
from humanity, but it's also depression, isn't it? Seem to be. Everyone knew that whoever let the sadness overtake him would sink into the swamp. I think, to be completely honest, to me, the never-ending story is about the dangers of allowing nothing to take over. And in these early weeks of lockdown, I can feel that nothing creeping. But the way that I'm finding to keep it at bay is to keep my hope going, to keep my imagination going through reading, mm. through watching films, through having conversations with friends. And so it seemed to me to be the perfect time, black holes aside, <laughs> to cover the never-ending story. Books, online games, not online games, films, TV series, getting on with your work, hanging out with family or friends that you live with, listening to podcasts, whatever it is, I hope that you, wherever you are, are finding your own ways to keep Fantasia alive and the nothingness at bay. It's it's different, isn't it? It's um there's there's things that have changed and there's things that have stayed the same. Uh, I spent this morning catching up on my YouTube videos, which uh, was great, and it, it didn't feel much different from a, a normal mm. Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> but then. There's a lot of people that I like seeing regularly that I haven't caught up with. There's people that I've had to make the effort to catch up with online. It'd be a lot nicer hanging out with you guys with a beer right now. Mm. I'd probably say anxious and overwhelmed is more what I kind of move between because I sort of like almost go into like, was it autopilot where I'm like, oh, right, because I've just moved into a house. So I've got all these different things and projects and things that I can like put my mind to, which as you kind of said, Steve like is kind of like a normal way that I might be spending my time mm. anyway it's kind of only when I sort of sit down and I'm like oh it would be cool to go and hang out with these guys or it'd be nice to go and pop pop down to the pub or you know like those sorts of things when you start to actually be like oh shit and then you're like cool I'm gonna look at my phone now and see what's going on with coronavirus on the news and then that kind of starts to feel a bit like too much almost because I think we're just sort of overly saturated with information because it's not just what's going on in the UK it's like what's going on everywhere and then you're seeing all these videos of people that are like you know oh I'm starting my side hustle or I'm putting out like workout videos or I'm doing this thing and like the generosity mm. that has come through from people sort of you know doing all of that for free like taking off the paywalls for people to be able to access that stuff is fantastic um, but there are a lot of people that's work has actually like skyrocketed and you're actually really, really busy. <laughs> so you don't have time to be like reading books or doing all those hobby things or setting new things up. Like you don't have that time. And that's kind of like a weird thing to process as well, because there are so many people that are like, oh, yeah, I'm doing all this awesome stuff and putting all this new stuff together and reading War and Peace and, you know, all of that, that kind of stuff. And you're like, 
am I like really far behind you because I'm not doing that like I'm getting through the working day and then like taking a moment to try and detox from that like it's a bit it's just really odd we've all turned around our ways of working in a very short space of time um I've had to do quite a bit of reactive stuff to that um and yeah I I do feel a bit behind what other people have have been saying maybe they're better at change than me I don't know I just think I may and maybe we are right but I think we always have to be really careful about what you see I this isn't news to anyone I know but what we see in social media and is basically a fleeting moment which has become yeah. permanent Absolutely. through some kind of digital representation of it and it's designed for us to 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 make every moment look like it's the most glorious thing that's ever happened it's just not real we're all struggling through it in our own way i think i guess the positive things that are coming from it like taking pleasure and noticing those things which you probably wouldn't notice if we weren't in a lockdown mm. i was actually sitting by the by the cosmic shed at the back of the garden earlier a butterfly and it was just coming out for the first time and it was a chrysalis and it was in this cosmic shed and it was just trying to get out the window so I opened the the flap at the top of the door butterfly came out and then just do I don't know if you've ever seen a butterfly when it first came out they land and they flap their wings and I think they're drying out their wings so that they can then properly fly oh thanks Andrew tell us more near my home there used to be a beautiful lake but then then it, it was gone. Did the lake dry up? No, it just wasn't there anymore. Nothing was there anymore. Not even a dried up lake. I, I want to do a, a very brief diversion to, to mention uh, the person who I now consider the, the man of the match in that film. There was a character who um, I thought, oh, I, I really recognize that person. I've I've just found out who he is deep roy or gurdeep roy played teeny weeny at the start i think rode the racing snail he plays the oompa loompas in charlie and the chocolate factory but he's also after saying that no one in that film really went on to to do anything else he uh was in x-files doctor who uh, he played keenza in a couple of recent star trek series the, the guy with kind of the green spiky face you wouldn't really recognize him as the actor but it was in Star Trek in 2009 he was, and in Into Darkness, and in Star Trek Beyond. Uh, so, yeah, absolute legend. Deep Roy, look him up. Definitely. Maddie, final thoughts on the film? Really lovely idea. Um, what kid wouldn't want to be part of the story that they're reading, you know? Um, that's a really nice touch, to be part of, well, to be a very major plot point of the book that you're reading, um, even if your mum is called Moonchild, which is a bit strange. Um <laughs> really strange um living in a world where there are people with multiple heads crazy bonkers but like definitely the stuff of fantasy imagination with some really nice morals underneath it i, I liked it Tushna? I, I feel like it's like an, a good tick box you know like yeah i've done that now i've watched it okay. <laughs> that was that <laughs> i don't know I, I did enjoy it i did enjoy it I like you know throughout the film i was kind of like oh this is so fun and easy kind of yeah it was very um easy entertainment and um there were a few bits that i was laughing at the film <laughs> rather than with the film but it was still all good and i definitely feel like i do want to read the book now i feel like 
um, you know, for all the concepts that Maddie just described, they're really good. And I want to see it done well and have a feeling that the book will do that. I really loved it because it was a blast from the past for me. Um, and, and it took me back. There, there was lots that I didn't remember and there were some key bits that I did. Um, definitely rose-tinted specs on that. Um, also, I think that the theme tune for The NeverEnding Story was absolutely excellent. The, the sort of techno-pop uh, banging beats really sticks in my head. Totally. It is a wonderful thing. Giorgio Moroder, Steven Spielberg coming together and um, in their own way, making uh, making the film what it was. There's another uh, Giorgio Moroder classic, um, Together in Electric Dreams, another film where the f- the song is considerably better than the film. Or in that in that case, actually, the film is truly awful and has nothing <laughs> to recommend it whatsoever. So. But I do have a recommendation for another '80s film that I think we should watch. I, I don't think you could call it a classic you could call it a cult film and I am actually be really interested to know if any of you have actually watched it it's um the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension the lead character Dr Buckaroo Banzai he is a rock star physicist neurosurgeon test pilot who has to save the world because of interdimensional aliens who are all called John if I remember correctly (laughs) Um, yeah, after, 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, Tushner. 69% it, on Rotten Tomatoes, though. So, uh, it's, I'm telling you, I love it. Oh, my God. I'm just looking at a still from the trailer right now, and I, I really want to see what the hell this is about. I, it is literally, it's brilliant. And it's one of like my favorite films. I feel bad <gasps> in saying that. Cast Tushner, John Lithgow. Goldblum, Christopher Lloyd. It's so good. It's so good. It's so uh, good. Yeah, and okay. it's so eighties again. And it's just, yeah. It's 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 it's. I think uh, I think the shed will love it. Let's watch it. And if if we can bring ourselves to podcast afterwards, we'll do that. And it's a ridiculously long time since I've been able to say this, and I am delighted to be able to say, here's Ben. Hello. I will say, I haven't managed to rewatch. The never-ending story. Uh, I won't say I haven't had time. I just haven't managed to do it. Um, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, and uh, I don't think it made the biggest impression on me, uh, which is obviously a failing of mine. I was more into labyrinth and time bandits, and something from that period of puppety fantasy films that really made an impression on me was The Dark Crystal. And uh, the prequel series last year, The Age of Resistance, absolutely fantastic if you haven't seen that. Uh, Really made with a lot of love, bringing back the original artist, um, amazing puppetry and design and cinematography, wonderful acting from the puppeteers and the voice actors, and just, yeah, beautiful story if you haven't seen that. I haven't written a poem or anything really for... A long time so I wanted to give myself some strict rules you know I've kind of got used to you Andrew really being strict with the, the form of the poems that I have to write for the cosmic shed so this time I, I gave myself the form of the blitz poem the blitz poem is a form of poetry created by Robert Kine there's no rhyme scheme but there are quite strict rules which I like makes it easier for me 
Uh, there are 50 lines, very short lines, sometimes two or three words per line. And instead of trying to explain the rules, here's a little bit from one of his examples of Blitz poetry called Bucket of Poetry. Kick the can, kick the bucket. Bucket of chum, bucket of worms. Worms in dirt, worms in my brain. Brain in my head, brains in my book. And it goes on like that. Uh, until the 49th and 50th line, which are just single words from the preceding two lines. All right, hopefully you get the idea. The rules for the title is that it should be the first word of line three and line 47. The poem isn't about the never-ending story or the dark crystal, but Andrew wanted me to put the word nothing in there somewhere. End of a decade. End of nothing. Nothing to do, nothing to lose. Lose yourself, lose your edge. Edge closer, edge of reason. Reason fails, reason to stay. Stay down, stay small. Small men, small fear. Fear founded, fear of failing. Failing upwards, failing as all. All is clear, all is white. White knight, white horse. Horse feathers, horse to water. Water boils, water cycle. Cycle path, cycle ride. Ride till dawn, ride it out. Out of breath. Out of the blue, blue sky, blue birds, birds returning, birds singing, singing in tune, singing along, along the way, a long lonely night. Night creeps, night falls, falls asleep, falls at your feet, feet on deck, feet on the ground, ground down, ground to dust, dust down. Thanks, Ben. I'd like to thank Steve, Tushner, and Maddie. And Ty and Melanie Johnson Hollett for joining me for this rather peculiar episode of the Cosmic Shed during the lockdown. Uh, and I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andrew. Turn around. Look at what you see. Some people have been in touch to say how important it is to them to have podcasts to listen to and to have the Cosmic Shed specifically to listen to. But don't forget, we're part of the Stimulus Network and there are some wonderful podcasts on the Stimulus Network to listen to. And I think that we might do some collaborations with them in weeks to come. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.